Shabbat Shalom. This week, uh, we are going to be concluding our series of God's mercy and the devil's grace. And uh, we are going to do this, for lack of a better term, in a very gently, gentle manner, if you will. And uh, really what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to end this series in the very same way that we began it. And so if you remember the trajectory, really what we were looking to do is to accomplish that we are not saved by our own works. No matter how much righteousness that you perform within the Torah, it's not going to be enough. You still fall short, right? Because all of us have sin. There's none righteous, no, not one, Psalms 14 says. And so when we look at these things, this is just, we're, 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 we're stuck with this reality in which the only hope is grace. The only hope for us is God's mercy and who we know that we're told from Paul that that is actually the Messiah, Yeshua. So today we're actually going to be continuing in that vein with that trajectory. We're going to land softly and uh, on a positive note. And, uh, and it's kind of just going to be kind of a, I got a, kind of a, an array, a potpourri of different passages I want to share with you. But there, there is a, a fundamental emphasis in today's message. And with that said... I want to get right into it. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, this is what we read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. And you look at this, this is so critical that you see that mercy, Peter identifies this, mercy is, makes it possible to be begotten again. Now, what does Peter mean by begotten again? Well, that goes back to the old term, you know, that was really heavily used in the 80s, uh, me growing up uh, in the church where uh, being a Christian, that didn't mean you were saved. You had to be born again. Remember that? You got to be born again Christians. And, uh, well, there's a lot of truth to that. And uh, Yeshua, remember Yeshua's conversation with Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he goes to, he's a teacher of Israel, and he tells him, he, he startles him, he shakes him to the core, and tells him, unless you are born again, you cannot be saved. Will not happen. Nicodemus steps back, can, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Yeshua says, he goes on and says, well, unless a man is born of water and of spirit, he will never enter the kingdom of God. And see, when you look at it in the Greek and the terms that Yeshua is using, he's actually referring to being born from the heaven. Being born from heaven. When you think of that concept, that's what Paul means. When we're a new creation and the Messiah Yeshua, we are born again, born from heaven. That's what it is. But what makes it possible? What makes it possible is mercy. That's what makes it possible. You think about that. And we continue to read. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua Mashiach from the dead. Now, I, I got to tell you, look at when Peter says through the resurrection, he just equated the resurrection of Yeshua to mercy. Now, that may not mean a lot right now, but we're going to dig into this a little bit deeper. And uh, this is the primary reason... Um, I wasn't going to even add a last part to this. But what we just read was the primary reason that you know, I, I need to add this. And I was going back and forth playing ping pong in my head. And you don't want to be a part of that. But uh, 
there is so much that you need to appreciate about what Peter just articulated. Um, We'll get into that in a minute, but for now, I don't want to get off track here. There's something I'm after with Peter. Jumping to verse 10, this is what we read. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied, well, look at this, of the grace that would come to you. This is absolutely fascinating to me. Because here, Peter reveals something monumental. Go all the way back into time to the prophets of old who prophesied. They were anointed with the Ruach HaGodesh. They spoke the word of the Lord. They made the very Lord's people tremble themselves. And actually, what we're told is they were after something. Something in particular. One particular thing. They, they were obsessed. They sought it out. They inquired. They had one primary concern. What was their concern? Grace. How crazy does that sound? That's, a, that's a absolutely fundamentally revelatory. It's a revelation here. Before the coming of Yeshua, all the prophets, all the righteous men that were lived, they were obsessed with one thing, with the grace of the living God. And yet, post-Yeshua, all the generations that follow, what should we be obsessed over? What should we be focused on? The very same thing. The grace of God. How, how amazing is that? Yeshua himself, he actually builds upon this concept of the prophets of old, of looking towards this grace. And this is what he says in Matthew 13, verse 17. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I want you to think about what he just said, the same thing Peter said. All these prophets, these righteous men that existed, they were looking for the grace of God. Yeshua comes on the scene and said, it's all about me. They wanted to see the grace that I would show the people as I'd go out and I'd make the blind to see, the deaf to hear. I would raise the dead. I would speak to the winds and seas and they would cease. He knew that this were after. Not just that. It wasn't just the things that the apostles saw. Because this is Yeshua. He's speaking to his apostles. But he also tells them, all the prophets, they wanted to hear what you heard. That's amazing because when Yeshua went out, what did he do? He taught Torah. He taught the word in spirit and in truth so powerfully that we're told in Matthew 7, the people stood back and they were astonished. They were left in awe because he didn't teach as the scribes and Pharisees. He was one who taught with authority. He was one who taught with power. So much so as you get to John chapter 7, uh, they make the identification that no man, no man, you think about all the righteous men that have lived, no man has ever spoke like this man. Completely unique in his own right. And this is what the prophets were after. This is what they sought. They were seeking the grace of God. Let me take you to the book of Philippians because I want to show you just how powerful of a concept this really is and how it impacted the apostles. Specifically, one particular apostle that I'm going to show you who himself was a Pharisee. And man, this is really going to put it in context for you. Going to Philippians 3, the apostle Paul has this to say. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you 
is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. I want you to understand, I always stop here. When every time I teach on Philippians 3, I stop right here. Because everything that follows, everything that we're going to hear about, that Paul's going to state, was said to the Philippians multiple times, over and over again. He kept writing to them the same things. He makes note of that. But at the very end, why? For you, it is safe. Safety, protection. So what we're about to encounter is for our protection. So we want to pay very, very close attention. And this is what we read in verse 2. Beware of dogs. Now I want to be very clear. Uh, This is not a postal worker uh, disclaimer or warning. And this is important because Paul is identifying groups of people. Very important. Beware of dogs. Dogs is a reference to Gentiles. They're referred to as dogs. This is consistent throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. You go to Psalm 22, that messianic psalm, and, which was all about Yeshua's crucifixion, and it actually says, the dogs have surrounded me. It was referencing the Gentiles to the Romans that had crucified him. You'll notice also in the passage that there's a distinction that he was also strong bulls. The bulls of Bashan had surrounded him. Well, that's a direct reference to his own people, to the religious leaders of the day, uh, to liken uh, them to bulls. This is consistent in Jewish history. All you need to do is read the book of Enoch and that comes out. The other thing is, you know, I mean, we could go on and on talking about this. Revelation 22, it talks about dogs will be cast outside the kingdom of heaven. It's not talking about canines. It's talking about unbelieving Gentiles who acted wickedly. Matthew 15, just to give you another example, the Syrophoenician woman comes up to Yeshua. She's asked, begging him for him to heal her daughter. She's demon-possessed. And what he said, it's not good for me to take the children's bread and give it to the little dogs. She was a Gentile. Okay, so all throughout Scripture, it's consistent that it's referring to dogs. And here we have a first century Jew. we got to get into his mindset of what he means. And so he says, beware of dogs. Beware of the Gentiles. These unbelieving Gentiles. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. He moves on to a different group of people. He's referring to his own brethren, the Jewish people. But in a context of mutilation. In other words, mutilating circumcision. Mutilating to what the Jew has been called to. And so these were Jews, this group of Jews were of concern to Paul who have fallen off the tracks, who had fallen by the way, they've gone askew. And they were not following the steps of the apostles, Jewish men. Which is why he goes on to say, for we, Paul is referring to the Jewish apostles. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Messiah Yeshua and have no confidence in the flesh. Moving on to verse 4, we read, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. I want to tell you something. You want notoriety? In Israel, among the people of God, this is it. This is a resume. 
This is a resume like none other. What Paul just said, if anyone thinks that he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Think about that statement. Paul's saying, I dare you. Put your resume up against mine. I am greater than you. I am greater than you. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was a Torah scholar. He was a Torah scholar. And understand something. He wasn't just a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. And guess what? This is also on his resume. Paul studied at the feet of one of the greatest sages ever. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was the grandson of the great Hillel. Probably considered by some Jews the greatest sage that has ever lived. Rabbinic sage. In fact, there's this thing called the school of Hillel. And this is, fills the pages of the Mishnah. Where you go back and forth. Well, what does the house of Hillel say? What does the house of Shammai say? Hillel's grandson was Paul's teacher. I mean, think about who Paul is for a second. He was the elite of the elite in Israel. To be a Pharisee, to be a teacher of the law. Remember the Pershim, they sat on the Sanhedrin. It wasn't just the Kohanim. It wasn't just the Sadducees who filled the Sanhedrin and rendered judgments in Yerushalayim. In the times of Yeshua... The Pharisees, the Pharisees sat on these seats as well. Gamliel, in fact, we have a judgment that was rendered early on in Acts. The apostles, they're preaching the gospel of Yeshua. The leaders assemble, the Sanhedrin assembles, of which Gamliel was a part of. It was interesting, Gamliel gives this wise commentary. You can tell he is a brilliant rabbi. And says, let them alone. If the things of God, you will find yourselves fighting against God. But if it's a man, it will come to nothing. Amazing statement. This is who Paul is. And with this in mind, listen to what he says next. In verse 6, we read the following. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Mashiach. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Mashiach Yeshua, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul's entire identity, everything that he valued was based upon what he had accomplished in the flesh. His self-worth, his identity was entirely encapsulated by being a Hebrew of Hebrews, by being a Torah scholar, by being a Pharisee, by studying, by being zealous for the law, by persecuting the church. Everything that established him, that, 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 who, what made him, his identity was wrapped, in the, wrapped up in these things. But when he experienced Yeshua, something radical happened. You find that all of these things, they just started to melt away. And all his focus went on the Jewish Messiah. Absolutely amazing. Even to the point where look at what Paul says. He says they were rubbish. You, you look at the Greek and this is skubalon in the Greek. It actually means table scraps, waste, the stuff you would throw the dogs. You would discard. You wouldn't eat it. To the point he does this, and let me be clear on something. For a first century Jew, especially someone who was a Pharisee, to make a statement like this, he was either completely rendered insane or he had a radical life transformation. Because make no mistake, I mean, Paul's notorious for this. You make a statement like this, 
I dare you to go to Meshireen. Does it any, even if you were a Jew and you were considered yourself an Orthodox Jew and start to make statements like this, that everything, the fact that I'm a Torah scholar, the fact that I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm in the tribe of the Benjamin, and I counted all as Scubalon. And see what happens by your brothers. You'll be lucky if you get out alive. Because you just don't get away with talking like that. No Jew with his weight and salt would talk like this unless radical life transformation. Something divine, something supernatural was revealed to Paul. And what was it? It was the grace of God. He finally now understood what all the prophets were looking for. Everything that they were studying, everything that consumed their very being, they were looking for the grace the apostle Paul found. And he witnessed and he experienced. Absolutely amazing. Continuing on in verse 9, this is what we read. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the Torah, but that which is through faith in Mashiach, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, this is a concept that you should be well acquainted with because we covered it very well in week one. It's not by our works, no matter how well we do it. Paul said he was blameless in the Torah. That's pretty elevated. As far as someone who is Torah observant, you can't get higher than that. And yet he makes a statement, no matter what I did, it doesn't, it isn't enough. It doesn't cut it. And we know why. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. And with that glory revealed to him, oh, he got that revelation instantaneously. When he called him, who are you, Lord? And Yeshua responds, you're the one, you're, I am the one you're persecuting. You know, you think of, there's always a verse that I, I think of when we get into this realm of not of understanding that we're not justified by our own works and not putting the emphasis on that, but the emphasis on Yeshua. There's a proverb that states, it's a rhetorical question, very Jewish. Who can say that I've made my heart clean, that I am pure from sin? Nobody can stand and make that statement and say, I, I, I've made atonement for myself. I don't need you. Nobody can say that. And this is the point Paul is getting at. Now, as we continue, we're, we're going to see Paul's going to identify something that we saw Peter identify earlier in verse 10. And this is what we read. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul gives us an incredible, I mean, it's, this is a comprehensive description of what the gospel is. I mean, look at, he talks about Yeshua's sufferings, obviously referring to his death, making atonement for our sins, right? But that's not all he talks about. He talks about what happened after he died. What happened? Well, you could say, well, he was buried. Okay, after that, what happened? He resurrected from the grave. And I'm going to tell you something. This is a critical piece the puzzle to really unlocking the understanding of what God's mercy is, what it means, the effects of it in your life, how this should impact our lives. Notice what Paul says right at the beginning here. Look at what he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. In other words, Paul identifies a connection. 
literally between God's mercy and the resurrection of Yeshua. Thus making God's mercy, it comes with great power. Do you understand that? Do you understand that relationship? When we are giving the mercy of God, we experience the power of God. Look at what Peter said. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1.3. What did Peter say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Yeshua HaMashiach from the dead. His mercy is equated. It's connected to the resurrection. I want you to ponder that for a second because typically when we think mercy, when we think grace, we go to the great sacrifice. And yes, that's absolutely a monumental part of it. But how many of you focus on the resurrection? How many of you make the connection that mercy comes to us because Yeshua rose from the dead? I want to share a story with you. It's a little peculiar. Stay with me through it. But I had a dream, and I want to be very clear, because, and I know, because I've talked to some of you here. But I had a dream not that long ago. And I'm going to tell you, the dream has transformed my faith. And so I think there's a significant distinction between when we say we have dreams uh, and we have spiritual experiences. I mean, some of your dreams are so wacky. Some of you have shared your, your crazy dreams with me. I mean, I, even to the point where we're riding tricycles and licking lollipops in the clouds. That is crazy. Okay, there's some crazy things we dream. Dreams come through much activity. We, we know these things. All right? What I'm going to share with you was not that. It's a spiritual experience. Life transforming for me. I was brought into this room, and it was completely black, but it went, I couldn't see the end of it. So I say this room, but it was just massive. I couldn't see the end of it, and all it was was black. But inside was a demon. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I didn't know what to make of the situation. Do you know why? Because the demon didn't look like a demon. The demon looked very different. In fact, the demon didn't look scary at all. There was no claws. There was no fangs. There was no drool. There was no horns. There was no massive disfigurement. Nothing to strike terror and fear into you. It didn't look anything like that at all. Although I will say there was one thing that was abnormal about him. And it was his eyes. His eyes were abnormally large. And I was drawn to them. That's all I looked at. I kept looking at his eyes. But here's the thing. As I start to come into this room, his eyes, I could see them looking intently, moving, 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 going back and moving. And with every time he's moving his eyes, I could feel that there was a purpose looking down on people. I couldn't see anything, but I knew what was happening. And he was so intent and so focused. And even at this time, I didn't know what to make out of him. I didn't realize he was a demon. Until he lifted his eyes and he looked at me, would not take his eyes off me. Then I, got, then I had fear. I had fear because he would not take his eyes off me. And then he started to approach me. And that's where things got really weird. 
Because as he started to approach me, I started to walk away. And what we ended up doing is we ended up doing circles like this, walking away. And he's just looking at me. Nothing being said. It was so bizarre until he opened his mouth. And when he opened his mouth, I was dumbfounded. Because he said something I never expected him to say. He basically came out and said, your God is dead. That's what he, and and for me, your God is dead. He follows it up by, he's still in the grave. I got to tell you, even after I pondered this, and there's more to the story, I'll finish it in a moment. That concept took me by surprise. And let me tell you why. Why is he saying this to me? Because for me, this is not a struggle. I grew up in the faith from a child from six years old. I believe that Yeshua rose from the grave. It's that simple. This is not a struggle for me. You know, what I would think is that he would try to debate scripture with me. Let's get into scripture. Let's talk. And I'll, I'll sit down with you. Well, let's talk this out. That would make sense to me. But he opens his mouth and says, your God is dead. He is not risen. He's still in the grave. And I literally sat there, and and at this time, as he's opening his mouth, I mean, fear consumed. Consumed in fear. But when I went to go open my mouth, I had all the strength. I had all the strength that I couldn't believe. It was like superpower. And I said, my God is not dead. The king has risen. Now, what's interesting about this is what I said next. And this is the whole point of even taking you here. And I'm going to tell you, this is not something I would say. This is not how I would respond to this. I want to go to scripture. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to start quoting scripture. That's not what I did. I literally went out and told him, the power is in the resurrection. I want you to think about that. The power is in the resurrection. To this day, I marvel at those words because I don't know where they came from. Yeah, yeah, I get the concept that Yeshua rose from the dead. My faith is established on it, but I had no idea. When you're in war, when you're at a time of war and you're up against the enemy, what that meant. No appreciation until today. Only today do I understand the gravity, the weight, the power of the resurrection. When I said that, he became livid. I wish I, could, I wish I could show you the clip, the film of this literally happening. But he became so livid because he knew, he realized that I had the truth. He realized that I had victory and there's nothing he could do. Because the power, the resurrection, it's all in the resurrection. Listen to what Yeshua says in Revelation 1. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. And when I saw him, I fell as, uh, at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Moving on to verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. The power is in the resurrection. When Yeshua rose from the grave, he took something. He took the keys to the grave and of death. He gained power over sin. 
Let me tell you something. Had Yeshua died for our sins and remained in the grave, there would be no atonement. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Because the power is in the resurrection. I'm going to tell you something. You go to war, things change. You can prepare all you want in your mind how you think things are going to work out. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be totally different when you get there. All of a sudden, childhood concepts of the faith become massive nuclear bombs against the enemy. This thing that I knew at six years old that I just believed in my heart, Yeshua rose from the grave. Now being put into play in spiritual warfare to the degree that it wasn't even me who said it. It just came out. And that's what ended the conversation. And he had to leave. I mean, that's, that, that whole concept is mind-boggling. I'm going to tell you, this is the concept that you need to understand with mercy. For us to embrace mercy and what that means, it means power. You think grace, you think mercy, you better be thinking supernatural power. Because that's what it is. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. See, this is the reality. Total bondage. You are held captive by the enemy through your sins. Then he goes on, for he who has died, we emulate Yeshua, we die to this self, we're born again, right? And what happens is we're freed from sin. Moving on to verse 8. Now, if we died with Mashiach, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Mashiach, having been raised from the dead, where does Paul put the emphasis? Where is the power? What is this mercy? It's raised from the dead. He dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Dropping down to verse 14, which we covered For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. You understand? This is the power of God's mercy. This is the power of grace. When the law comes in, the condemnation of the law comes in, it overcomes that even. Think about that power. Remember what James said? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Total and utter power. I want to take you to the Psalms because personally for me, you know, no matter what, I was going to work the Psalms in on this series uh, because you just can't talk about God's mercy without going to them, to, to the Psalms. It's this beautiful tapestry of various passages of God's beautiful mercy triumphing over these trials and tribulations and anguish and sorrows and all of these things that take place. You look at David, who better Who better to write the Psalms than David? A man that every corner of his life was faced with adversity. From people trying to kill him, trying to take over his kingdom, to literally him falling into horrific sin, falling into adultery. He is the perfect guy to write these Psalms. It's the soothing aloe that soothes the soul. It's not a coincidence, amen, that... 
uh, when, when people are struggling, I've seen so many believers when they're struggling and they're in pain and they're in need of healing, guess where they gravitate towards? To the Psalms. So often they gravitate towards the Psalms and obviously uh, many times into the ministry of Yeshua, literally seeing that power, it, building your faith. That's what it is. It's about building your faith. Well, let me take you there. Psalm 38, verse 1. This is what we read. Uh, Psalm of David, Mizmor le David, to bring to remembrance, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. I want to put the focus here. The arrows pierce me deeply. I want you to understand what David is saying. Do you, you know what Torah means in the Hebrew? If you're to translate it hyper-literally, what it means, it means to shoot. To shoot with an arrow, as in. That's what the Torah means. And here David is saying, your arrows pierce me. The Lord has released the arrows from his quiver. The Torah has pierced him through. The holiness and righteousness of God has crushed him. Powerful. I'm gonna, I want you to understand something. Again, you want to understand the mercy and grace of the living God? This is a concept that needs to go into the innermost sanctum of your heart. You need to respond as David responded. Not phony, not so because you read it and then you go through it. No, because you're crushed and mortified over what you've done. That's someone who understands what they're after. Let me share with you a, a, a quote, one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes. I've shared it before. But he has a lot to say in regard to this. He says, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. I want to be very clear. Remember, as we got in, in this study, showing as we went in deeper and deeper, we discovered there is a relationship between grace and Torah, between the mercy of God and his Torah. And Spurgeon knew it. I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law, the Torah, is the needle. And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. He goes on and says, If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners. And if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive till the law has slain him. Fascinating. Spurgeon recognized the reality, the true meaning of Torah means to shoot. Literally to slay us. That's what it means. That's the relationship. And such is the case with David. The arrows of the Lord had pierced his heart. He's devastated what he's done to the point that he actually goes on and says this in verse 3 in chapter 38. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. How many of you can relate to this, to this prayer, to how he cries out to the Lord? How many of you ever felt like you're literally suffocating in your failures where you have failed the Lord? I'm going to tell you, Praise the Lord. I'm not sadistic. That's a good thing. That's what you call godly sorrow. Embrace it. 
Embrace, don't bury it. Don't justify yourself so that you can sleep on your pillow at night and tell yourself, I'm saved. Embrace the arrows. Look at the reality. Look at your wounds by which the Lord has wounded you. And say, oh God, have mercy. You embrace that godly sorrow, it will produce life. It produces repentance. And we're told it leads to salvation. This is exactly what we see David experiencing. He's experiencing total agonizing pain. What does he do? If we understand mercy and how to go get it, how to attain it, how do we rectify this situation? Psalm 41 verse 4, he tells us, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Protocol for salvation. David is following perfect protocol. This verse, I'm going to tell you, this has all the elements necessary to bring us to a place of victory. To bring you to a place of hope when in fact you are in a state of hopelessness. Notice that David cries out to the Lord, but it's in the context here of faith. Did you catch that? It's in the context of faith. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal me. He is crying out to the Lord to be healed. You don't do that if you don't believe. He's doing it because he believes. This is in the context of faith. He presses into the Lord with humility, with faith. Not just that. At the very end, what does he say? For I have sinned against you. This is something that is absolutely imperative if we want mercy. You know, 1 John 1, 9, he who confesses his sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. Don't sweep them under the rug. Part of this series is about getting you to go after mercy, to go get it so that you can be in good standing with the Lord so that you can have eternal life. It is a basic salvational message. Call upon the name of the Lord. This is exactly what David is doing. He's calling upon the name of the Lord. But not just that. Something else that I want to point out that goes with what we've covered. Did you notice what David does here? He equates mercy to power. Right? Why does he say, Lord, be merciful to me, and then says, heal me? See, because David didn't look at mercy as just this concept of, oh, you forgive my sins and now I'm okay. No, he looked at it as healing, supernatural power. Think mercy, think power. Going to Matthew chapter 9, let me give you an example. When Yeshua departed from there, two blind men followed Yeshua, crying out, saying, Son of David... What? Have mercy on us. So they're crying out for mercy here. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came to him and Yeshua said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. What a coincidence. The very pattern of what we see. David praying, Lord, be merciful to me. But what is he asking for? To be healed. He's asking for power. These men going after Yeshua. Be merciful, Ben David. But what do they want? They want power. It's what they need. 
Mercy is power. You need to be empowered. We need the power of the living God. I want to close with this verse. I save this for the end. And this is just a warning about mercy and about grace. And let me fast forward here. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we, will, if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected, okay, I, I want to I stop right here and, and preface this, what we're, we're about to get into here. The writer is very careful. Atheteo in the Greek. He goes on to say, anyone who has atheteo, who has made void, that's what the word actually means, to make void or to do away with. Now in that context, that really starts to ring a bell when you start to talk about the law. So he says, anyone who has atheteo or rejected Moses' law, what happens? They die without mercy. I'm going to tell you something. You do not want to die without mercy. If you die in a state where you don't have God's mercy, the only thing you have to look forward to is the second death. Total destruction. God's horrific judgment from which we, when we read, I mean, read Isaiah 13. I mean, the people read the, you know, the book of Joel. People are terrified. They are overcome with such fear because the king of glory has been revealed and he's coming out and his garments are soaked in blood. And it isn't his blood. It's the blood of the wicked. I mean, this is, this is real stuff. And you think about, and going back to what we talked about, mercy is only given to those that love him and keep his commandments. Over and over, you can read the book of Daniel, you can read Psalms 103, you can read the Decalogue, you read the Ten Commandments, you read the words of Yeshua, all scattered all over. Mercy is afforded to those that turn, they repent, they embrace, they cry out for the mercy, they're empowered, and they walk in power because they walk in his commandments. So he says, you reject the Torah, you will die without mercy on the testimony of two or three because all things are established that way. Moving on in verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and done what? Insulted the Spirit of grace. In other words, if we're to embrace Yeshua as Lord and Savior, reject his commandments, do what was said before, we reject the Torah, his righteous ways... We're going to end up insulting the spirit of grace. But let me be clear. The writer is compartmentalizing here. It was one thing to sin in the law and to reject his commandments before Yeshua came. You reject his law after he came. The writer is saying, oh, you're far more worthy to receive much greater judgment. Because grace and mercy has been revealed. The very thing that the prophets of old were looking for. You think about what Paul talks about in Acts 17. He's talking to the Athenians, right? And says, in times past, God has overlooked the ignorance of these people. Now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why did Paul say that? In times past, he overlooked. It was before Yeshua. So it's just fascinating to me how the church has actually flip-flopped it. 
and said, well, now that Yeshua has come, we can live however we want. Uh, it's the exact opposite. Now that Yeshua has come, far more is required of us. And we'll end with this verse in Hebrews 10.30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God.